Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. You know, last week we began a new series that we are calling Royalty. And in this series, we're looking at Israel's first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And as I said last week, we're doing Saul this spring, David next spring, and Solomon the spring after that. So it's a long study, in, uh, and basically we're looking in the books of Samuel and Kings. And uh, since we're spending so much time, I think it is a fair question of like, why are we uh, I'm spending so much time in these ancient stories? I talked about that a little bit last week, but I want to go forward and give you one more reason. And I want to give you that reason in the form of an illustration. Um, as many of you know, I grew up uh, on the space coast of Florida. That's the East Coast, the Atlantic Coast, in a town called Melbourne. This was back in the 60s and 70s. We lived about five miles from the beach, and growing up as a little kid, most Saturday mornings I got up early with, and went surf fishing with my dad at the beach. And then when I got older and I could drive, during the school year I spent every Saturday in the summers at the uh, at the uh, at, at the beach, and then on Sunday afternoon, pretty much all Sunday afternoon, and uh, and so I I just pretty much lived at the beach, and some of you know that's where I met Karen, my beautiful wife of 44 years. Now, if you love going to the beach, then one thing you have to learn pretty early, uh, you have to learn about currents and rip currents. I mean, you can go into the water and swim or body surf or surf. And before you know it, a fast-moving current can take you 100 yards down the beach from where you put down your flip-flops and beach towel. And if there are rip currents, uh, you have no problem getting out into the waves, but you can have a real problem getting back to shore because when there's a bad rip current, you can swim and swim and swim against the outward pull of that current, but because it's so strong... You can swim and swim and swim until you give out, and it eventually pulls you under. Uh, every year, the guards, lifeguards, rescue many, many people paddling out on their longboards, rescuing them, bringing them back to shore. But sadly, every year, about 100 beachgoers drown due to these dangerous rip currents. I would submit to you that following Jesus is like swimming against a fast-moving, dangerous current that can eventually, if you're not careful, pull you under. I mean, let's just be honest. Following Jesus over the course of a lifetime, it's hard. And it's hard because life is hard. Life is complicated. Life is complex. And, and none of us really knows what we're doing, right? Anybody agree with me on that? Yeah, okay, 10 of you. And, uh, and so, yeah, life is hard, and we don't always know how to handle the things that life throws at us. Of course, we don't want to let anybody else know that. I mean, you know, we, we were afraid we'll lose our job if they knew we didn't have everything figured out, or maybe we'd lose other people's respect, but you know it's true. None of us really knows what we're doing. It's hard. And there's a second reason following Jesus is hard, and that is because the deadly current of our culture sweeps us along and tries to pull us down. And if we're not grounded in something stronger, in something deeper than the current of our culture and of life, man, it's like jumping into the ocean unprepared for the current and getting swept away. And what we see in these stories about the first three kings in Israel is that Israel, God's specially chosen people, keeps getting pulled under by the rip currents of the surrounding culture of their day a culture that continually pulls them away from God and it leads to one disaster after another 
and we see this over and over again in the lives of Saul and David and Solomon and in the nation of Israel as a whole. And today we're going to see this with painful clarity as we jump into chapters 4 through 8. So last week I covered three chapters. We're going to cover five today. All right? Stay with me. We're going to follow the same basic outline that we did last week. We're going to answer three questions. What's the passage about? What does it teach us about God? And how does it point us to Jesus? Those are the three questions. We'll do it. Uh, those uh, again, just like last week. What's the passage about? Now, last week we saw that these are dark days in the land of Israel. God's people were morally corrupt because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what they wanted with no regard for God or His Word. And they were spiritually bankrupt because they were being pulled under by the godless, idolatrous culture that surrounded them. And not only were the people in bad shape, but the priesthood was in bad shape. They were, the priests were spiritually and morally corrupt as well. And uh, Samuel, the priest, uh, the, one, the man who raised Samuel, uh, excuse, excuse me, Eli, the priest, the one who raised Samuel uh, to, be, to know the Lord, he had two sons that did not know the Lord. And uh, they robbed God of his uh, offerings when people came to make sacrifices, and they slept with women who came to the tabernacle to worship, which is, was a common practice in pagan worship. So God's temple is basically turned into a pagan temple. And since Eli would not remove his sons from the priesthood, God sent a strange man of God to tell Eli that he and his house were done. They were done. He said, the people in your family are going to die young, and your two sons are going to die on the same day. And that's probably about the worst news that you could ever hear. And just to make sure that Eli got the message, Yahweh sent a message through the boy Samuel, basically saying, you're done, it's over. So God is stepping in and he's replacing a corrupt priesthood with a godly, faithful priest, and that priest is Samuel. So chapter three ends with this summary. <clears throat> and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Keep reading. There shouldn't be a chapter break right here. And the word of, the, a word of Samuel came to all Israel. So here's why these things need to go together. What, what the narrator is saying is, Yahweh is speaking his word to Samuel, and Samuel is speaking God's word to his people. Now, as chapter 4 opens, uh, we find Israel going to war with one of their most well-known enemies, the, the Philistines. And we remember them from the Samson stories uh, that we looked at last year when we did our study through the book of Judges. And uh, if you remember, uh, we know about the uh, Philistines because of uh, the David and Goliath story. And what's interesting to me as this chapter opens is that here's Samuel. He's hearing the word of God, and he's speaking the word of God to the people. But as the chapter opens, it, we see that Israel goes to battle with the Philistines, and there is no mention of them seeking the word of Yahweh through Samuel. In fact, in fact Samuel doesn't even appear at all in chapters 4 through 6. And I take it that he's out going from one end of Israel to another. He's kind of like an old-time circuit-riding preacher or a circuit-riding judge. 
And we're actually told that in chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Anyway, it makes me wonder if maybe for the first time in a long time, Israel has begun to feel pretty good about themselves because it seems like to me that they undertook this battle on their own apart from Yahweh. And that's why the Philistines defeated them in battle and over 4,000 men were killed. Okay, so far so bad. Well, Israel attributes the loss to God and they ask each other in verse 3, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, and it's, 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 you know, they didn't consult him at all. And so uh, they're asking this question, and they go uh, to battle again, but instead of consulting uh, Yahweh, uh, they decide, I know, let's go get the ark. Now, he's not talking about Noah's ark. It, the ark was a large rectangular box overlaid with gold, it contained the two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written, the tablets of stone that uh, Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And so, so the ark was a symbolic reminder of the covenant relationship that Yahweh and uh, the people of Israel enjoyed together. It was a reminder that Israel's relationship with God was different from every other nation on the earth. The ark also contained a sample of manna from the wilderness wanderings, and that was a reminder of God's provision for his people. It contained Aaron's staff, which was used against Pharaoh, a reminder of God's protection. But most of all, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. Basically, it was a portable symbol of God's permanent presence among his people. But the people think that they think about the ark as being some kind of like good luck charm or a, or, a, or a weapon. Seems like they have pretty much memorized the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones opens an old Dutch Bible and he explains the significance of the ark and he shows them two pages. You might remember these. There's the ark going into the battle, a powerful weapon that destroys uh, the, uh, God's enemies. And uh, uh, so, so in the movie, the ark was a deadly weapon. How many of you remember that from the movie? Okay, lots of people, good. Um, that's just not true. But that's, that's how the Israelites are thinking. So they go to Shiloh to get it. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two wicked sons, help them carry it into battle. And, and, and they go into battle, and again, it, the Israelites are defeated. And this time, 30,000 men are killed in battle, and both of Eli's sons die in battle. Eli's back home at Shiloh when a messenger comes to tell him the bad news. We lost the battle. Your two sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. Well, um, Eli knew his sons were going to die on the same day. He seemed to have resigned himself to that because it was prophesied to him in the passage we looked at last week. It's heartbreaking, but it wasn't a surprise. But having the ark stolen was an unexpected tragedy uh, for Israel. This was by far the most significant loss of all. And when 98-year-old Eli hears that the Philistines have taken the ark, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. Meanwhile, Eli's grandson, Ichabod, is about to be born, and his father's just been killed in battle, and then his mother dies in childbirth. I mean, it's tragedy after tragedy that's fallen on the house of Eli, just like God said. 
Meanwhile, back at the battlefield, the Philistines believe that they've defeated Yahweh since they've captured what they think is him, and they've confused God with the golden box that served as his earthly throne. And so, uh, and so begins the battle between Yahweh and Dagon, the Philistine god. They take the ark uh, into the temple of Dagon. This is the temple that Samuel destroyed. So they've rebuilt it by this time, but they haven't forgotten. And Dagon is their god of fertility. Has, Dagon has the body of a fish and hands and head of a man. And so they take him in there. They, they put the ark in front of Dagon, but Yahweh doesn't fall for it. Yahweh does something that's both humorous and weighty. He knocks down the, the statue of Dagon in front of the ark in a posture of worship. And, and, and you know they might come in and go, well, I guess the wind blew it over. I don't know what happened. Well, they're going to get another lesson. So they set their God back up. Like they have to help the God back up. And the next day, not only is Dagon faced down in front of the ark again, but this time the hands and head of the statue are broken off. And just so they know that it's not simply from the fall, the, the heads and hand are set over in the doorway. So it's an unmistakable point here that Yahweh has defeated Dagon without the help of his people. And it gets even worse for the Philistines. So uh, chapter five, verse six says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. So Yahweh breaks their supposed victorious fish god into pieces in a posture of Yahweh worship. But now Yahweh brings a debilitating disease on the Philistine people. Now, do you want me to tell you what this is really all about? Okay, all right, you asked for it. All right, this is both humorous and deadly serious as well. The Latin Vulgate actually translates the word for tumor as bleeding hemorrhoids. Like out of all the things that God could afflict somebody with, like blindness at Sodom, I kind of get that, yeah, and uh, uh, boils in Egypt, I get that. Hemorrhoids. That's, uh, that's just funny. <laughs> I mean, now, I know this borders on potty humor, but I didn't write the story, okay? <laughs> of course, anyone that has had hemorrhoids knows it's not funny at all. But uh, that's not all that Yahweh brings on the Philistines. If you read the text closely, you find out that the, there was a plague of rats that, that infected people probably with dysentery. So that means bleeding hemorrhoids and diarrhea. <laughs> and diarrhea dehydrates you. Now back then there was no preparation H and there was no IV fluid treatments back then. So we're talking people are dying. And the text says that many people died. And there were five major uh, Philistine cities. And so the Phil uh, Philistines kept moving the ark from city to city, trying to put an end to the disease. But no matter where the ark resided, the people of that city were afflicted with the same things, and some of them die too. And this goes on for seven months. And finally, the Philistines are so diswrought that they want to send the ark back to Israel so they consult with their priests and their diviners to find out how to go about this. 
and the priest tells them to send a guilt offering along with the ark to appease the Israelite God, and the guilt offering should be five golden hemorrhoids, one for each of the five cities of the Philistine, and five golden rats. That is some kind of hemorrhoid right there. Now, by the way, you can see bronze copies of these rats in downtown Greenville. <laughs> you never knew that was a part of this uh, story, did you, when you went walk around? Well, their priest gave, also gave instructions that they should build a new cart and have that cart be pulled by milk cows. Now, the question is, why would you pull it? Why milk cows? Well, because milk cows have calves to feed, so their natural instinct would be to go home and care for their calves. And the Philistine priests say, if these milk cows go against their natural instincts, then we know that something supernatural is, is taking place here, and that would mean that the God of Israel must be in charge of everything that's happening. And wouldn't you know it, the cows go against their natural instincts, and they go straight toward Israel, and they're mooing all the way. They're calling for their calves, but the invisible hand of God is pulling them along towards Israel. And when the cows and the ark arrive at Beth Shemesh, the Israelites go crazy, shouting for joy, uh, praising God, and they offer milk cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's good, right? No, that's not good. Leviticus chapter 1 specifically states that only male animals, bulls, were to be used as sacrificial offerings. So they don't take God's word seriously. And on top of that, there are 70 people who look into the ark, which also violate, violates God's law that says that you shouldn't look at the ark, it should always be covered, and you don't look inside it or your faces melt off, like in Raiders of the Off. Now that's not true. But God does strike down 50, uh, uh, he does strike down 70 people, which is like, oh my goodness, what happened? What happened here? Well, what happened was the people were either ignorant of or they blatantly ignored God's word. And on, that, on a day that should have been this great victory celebration, here again, they did what was right in their own eyes and it cost them dearly. Now, the Levites who were there should have known these things, but again, they either know God's word and they ignore it, or they are ignorant of what God says, God's law says altogether, but even unintentional sin is sin. And if you think that God is being too harsh about the punishment he doles out here, most governments operate the same way, don't they? I mean, just because I'm not intentionally speeding... Or, or maybe I just don't know what the speed limit is. That doesn't mean that I won't get a ticket if I get caught. Now, all this terrifies the people of Beth Shemesh, and they do exactly what the Philistines did. They want to ship the ark out some, to some other place, and so they ask their neighbors in Kiriath-Jerim to come and take the ark away, and they gladly come and get the ark, and the ark resides in, uh, in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. The fact that it never came back to Shiloh suggests that Yahweh, through the agency of the Philistines, completely destroyed Shiloh as a place of worship. And in fact, Jeremiah, years later, in one of his prophecies, talks about that is exactly what God did to Shiloh. He wiped out their place of worship. So 
despite Yahweh defeating, soundly defeating the Philistines, they continued, the Philistines continue to rule over Israel because the Israelites just don't take God and his word seriously. But when we turn the page to chapter 7, something changes in the hearts of the people. In chapter 7, verse 2, we read that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, meaning, as, as Israel so often did when they are being oppressed, they begin to repent. That's the cycle of the judges that we look like, looked at last year at this time. The cycle of the judges was sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance, peace. And, and that's the cycle that they're in. This is all, it's just deja vu all over again. And so finally, we hear from Samuel for the first time in a long time, chapter 7, verse 3. By now, Samuel is viewed as the chief leader of Israel. He's the, their prophet, their priest, their judge. And he calls on the Israelites to repent of their sins and idolatry and to faithfully worship Yahweh alone. And he says the result will be that God, Yahweh, will deliver them from the Philistines. So they all meet at Mizpah and they fast and pray and make sacrifices to demonstrate their repentance by putting away their idols and foreign gods. And in the middle of their worship service, when they're offering sacrifice, the Philistines draw near to attack and Israel is afraid. Chapter seven, verse 10 says, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, and basically Israel finished them off. And Samuel sets up this stone, a memorial stone of remembrance, called, and he names it Ebenezer, which means so far, by your help I've come. Which is interesting because in chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that it was at Ebenezer that Israel was first defeated by the Philistines. And here, Ebenezer has been transformed into a memorial place to remind people of God's help. So if you've ever heard the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, you may have wondered what the line means when it, when it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. If you've heard that, now you know what it's all about. And, and, and not only does Israel defeat the uh, Philistines, but they have internal and external peace for many years to come. Now, right here, it seems like the narrators should say, and they all lived happily ever after. But that is not to be. Because revival does not guarantee future faithfulness. Chapter 8, verse 1, Samuel's getting old and he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges in the land. He expects them to take his place when he dies, and they're actually judges that preside over cases today. They settle dis disputes. And uh, the problem is, though, his two sons take bribes and disregard justice. It's a bit like... Eli all over again, maybe not quite as bad, but bad enough that the people go to Samuel and say, if you don't do something, this thing, whole thing is going to run off the rails. And they say, they're like, 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 hey, look, Samuel, we love you, we respect you, but you're old and you're probably going to die pretty soon. And your sons are not fit to lead Israel. So the people decide, we're done with judges, we want a king. And they want a king 
that will make them to be like all the other nations. Which, it was never God's intent that they would be like all the other nations. They would be different from all, of, all the other nations. And, and back in Deuteronomy 17, God had made a provision for a king. He would give them a king in his time and in his way, a humble, godly king who would rule God's people in a way that would reflect God's very own character to the people, a king unlike other nations. So this was not his time, and this was not his way, and Samuel knows it. So when the people demand a king, Samuel takes it as a personal rejection. But God says to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. Yahweh, who has demonstrated over and over that he is Israel's king, they reject him as king. And God says, just give them what they want. But first, tell them what it's going to be like. So he gives them this warning. Uh, He says, this is what it's going to be like under the king of your choosing a king who will be like the kings of all the other nations. Now, I'm going to read all of this because I want you to hear. Um, there's, a, there's a refrain in everything that's happening here about the kind of king you get when you choose your king instead of waiting for God's king. Chapter 8, verse 11. Samuel said, These would be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and uh, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. So the king will take your sons to be soldiers and take your daughters to be his servants. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olives and orchards and and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The king they choose will be a taker. No matter. The people refused to heed the warning. And they say, no, but there shall be a king. We are going to have a king that we may be like all the other nations. That our king, not you Samuel, our king should judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They continue to do what's right in their own eyes. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, give them what they want. And Samuel agreed and told the people to go home. You could say they got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. They got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. Are you really sure you want God to always answer your prayers the way you want them answered? I hope not. I think God really knows best. So that's so. what's the passage about? In chapters 4 through 6, Israel continues to be pulled along by their highest cultural value, doing what seems right and reasonable to them. 
They go out into battle without consulting the Lord, and they're defeated. They lose 4,000 soldiers in battle, and then they go and they get the ark of God, and they use it or abuse it like it's some kind of magic charm or some kind of weapon, hoping that the ark will give them the victory that they want. They get clobbered again, losing 30,000 soldiers this time, and then, even worse, The Philistines capture the ark, and Israel is devastated. So it does seem like Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh. But all is not lost. God shows up, and he shows both the Philistines and the Israelites who he really is. He shows them in one mistakable way after another that he is Israel's true king, and he is king over Israel and king over the nations, and he's king of kings and lord of lords. Now, what's really interesting here is these chapters 4 through 6 are a part, uh, a part of the story of Hannah's song that we looked at last week. She sang, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, I think Dagon figured that out, and there is no rock like our God, and that's abundantly clear in this whole story King Yahweh himself is the Ebenezer rock of help for Israel. And what else did Hannah sing about? She sang, for not by might shall a man prevail. Who defeated the Philistines? Yahweh, without the help of his people. She sang, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Who was broken into pieces? She's saying, against them he will thunder from heaven. And you compare that with what I read in chapter 7, verse 10, that says that Israel was experienced, as they were experiencing revival, and Samuel was offering a sacrifice to cover the people. Uh, The Philistines drew up to attack, but Yahweh thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so they were routed by Israel. So what's the passage about? Chapters 4 through 7 show us in unmistakable clarity that Yahweh is Israel's true king. And chapter 8 shows us that God's people reject Yahweh as their king. That's why these five chapters should be taken together. So taken together, the passage, chapters 4 through 8, is about God's people rejecting God as king in favor of a king they hope will make them like everybody else. That's what these chapters are about. God's people rejecting God as king in favor of a king that they hope will make them like everybody else. So what does this passage teach us about God? Well, this is pretty simple. This passage teaches us that God is our king and we are to give him the love, honor, and respect he rightly deserves as our king. This is not hard. The passage teaches us that God is our king and we are to give him the honor, love, and respect that, is, that he rightly deserves as our king. Now, when I was thinking about this, and I, after I wrote that, I started to think, how do I, how do we fail to honor God as king? And I think there's several ways, but I, I'm just looking at two that I think fit with this text. The first of all, we fail to honor God as king when we treat him lightly. We fail to honor God as king when we treat him lightly. When the scriptures talk about the glory of God, the glory of our king, in the Hebrew, the word glory means weighty. To say that God is glorious 
is to acknowledge his true identity, his greatness, his majesty, his power, his weightiness. And so when the Philistines capture the ark and the glory of God departs from Israel, in reality, the reason that the ark was captured because the glory of God had already left Israel because they had treated him so lightly. And isn't it strange that what the Philistine priests and diviners tell their leaders when they're going to send the ark back to Israel, they say, make a guilt offering and give glory to the God of Israel. <laughs> and they do. But such is not the case with God's people. Strange, isn't it? The Philistines, are they see Yahweh as having more weight than God's own people. Let me put it this way. We treat God lightly when we treat God like a server in a restaurant. Like you, you go to a restaurant, you sit down at a table with friends and, and family, and you enjoy a meal, and you're talking, and you're laughing, and you're telling stories. And the fact is, most of the time, you don't pay any attention to the server. But when you want something, you call for the server and say, hey, uh, uh, can we order dessert now? Um, hey, can you bring us some, some more water? Uh, hey, can we have the bill, please? And the server doesn't sit at the table with you. He, he or she's not a part of your evening, you just call them over uh, when you want something. Now we can treat God that way. He's not really the center of our lives, maybe not even much of a part of our lives, but when we need him, we call him over to help. We treat him lightly. And so it's not hard to end up seeing God in an unweighty way. Like to think maybe unconsciously, but, uh, you know, I come to church on Sunday morning and I read my Bible every now and then and I give some money to the church to help God out. And in return, I kind of expect God to save me from hell and to, to help me when I need him. I, I want God to ensure that I have a comfortable, happy life or, or I want whatever it is I want and, and, and he should give it to me. In other words, we set ourselves up as king and we turn God into the server of our table. But you see, for God to be your king, you need to honor him as king by giving him the glory he alone deserves. We need to recognize the weight of his glory. So first, we fail to honor God when we treat him lightly. Second, we fail to honor God when we don't take his word seriously. When we don't take his word seriously, Israel went into the battle without seeking a word from the Lord. They didn't take God's word seriously. Israel treated the ark with disrespect in chapter 4 by acting like it was a magic charm or a weapon. And in chapter 6, they treated the ark with dishonor when they ignored what God's word said about looking at the ark or into the ark. And again, they didn't take God's word seriously. And in both cases, there were deadly consequences. You see, if God is your king, his word has to carry more weight than every other word. The problem is the cultural riptides we swim in today are sweeping many Christ followers away from what God's word says about how he has designed life under his kingship to be lived. The problem is we trade God's definitions of right and wrong for cultural definitions of right and wrong. And in so doing, we give our allegiance to the king of culture rather than the king of kings. For example, 
God says he created us male and female, but our culture says you can choose whatever gender you want to be. God says he created male and female for a lifelong one man, one woman relationship in a covenant of marriage, but now our culture and even our government has redefined marriage to mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. God says sex is something God created for marriage, but the culture says there's nothing special about sex, so just eat, drink, have sex, and be merry. God says your number one allegiance is to me, me as your king, me as your hope, me as your provision and your uh, protection. But many Christ followers today have taken up cultural, political banners hoping that we can elect a king that will give us what we want. God says lying is wrong, but our culture lies to us all the time, and we believe it's lies, and we become liars ourselves. We lie to other people, and we lie to ourselves. God says all life is precious in his sight, but our culture says it's your right to end a life. I could go on, but you see what I'm saying. The current of the culture pulls us toward wanting to be like everybody else, and to do what is right in our eyes rather than what's right in God's eyes. And God, it's like God is thundering from heaven. If you don't honor me as your king, if you don't listen to me, you'll be dragged along by the current of the culture and you'll eventually drown in it. The king of culture is a taker. It takes your heart and enslaves it to passions that will not satisfy. It takes your mind and fills it with empty promises that are nothing but lies. It takes your body and makes decorating it and pleasuring it what you live for. It takes your soul and shackles it in a prison of guilt and shame and regret. And it takes your strength and focuses it on trying hard to blend in like everybody else. And we get what we want, but we lose what we had. And I know a lot of us have seen this cultural drift with with friends and family that we have been close to over the years. And we see them now and they're way downstream from where they used to be. And, and we, I, I'm seeing it in churches today because churches in this country are drifting and they're forsaking sound doctrine. They're turning away from biblical teaching. They're preaching messages that are geared to help you be the king of your life. They're preaching messages tickling people's ears with false promises of prosperity and health. And they're embracing political agendas that promise to bring an end to racism and injustice and violence. And yet violence is at an all-time high because godless people cannot bring about godless, godly justice. Godless people cannot bring about godly justice. Or said another way, the values of the Philistines don't mesh with what God says in his word. This isn't hard to understand. I mean, do, do you not see that godless people have no desire to submit to God as king or to submit to God's word as true? If so, then how can you expect a godless culture to bring about God's will? Let me bottom line it this way. When we treat God lightly, it leads to us not taking God's word seriously, which leads to adopting the beliefs and values of our godless culture which ultimately ends in disaster. And I think most of y'all would agree with me about that. 
And, uh, and, and because of everything I just said, you're, 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 you're going, I just wish we could have a First Samuel 7 moment. I wish God would, there would be a re- revival. I bet most of you have heard about the revival that went on for two weeks up at Asbury University in Kentucky. I've had multiple discussions with people inside and outside the church, and, and number one, I want to say I do believe that what has happened at Asbury and is happening on college campuses across our nation is a true work of God. It is very reminiscent of, I was a part of the Jesus Revolution in the 60s. It's very much like that. And it's very much like it has all the marks of early revivals or awakenings in the past history of our country. In some conversations I've had, I hear people who, as we all do, hunger for God to do a great work of awakening in us, in our churches, in our nations, and they say things like, wouldn't it be great if revival swept across our country? And wouldn't it be great if if Fellowship Greenville experienced revival like at Asbury? And I even hear people say, what can we do to bring it here? And I understand those sentiments. I I, I really do. But we, we need to define our terms. Revival, as the word is being used in connection with Asbury, is not the same thing as a week-long series of evangelistic meetings with altar calls like I experienced in the Baptist church I grew up in, like revival meetings. Now, a lot of people got saved in those meetings, and a lot of people rededicated their lives to the Lord in those meetings, and that was really good. That's not what was happening at Asbury. And I also think that when some people say, oh, we need revival, we should pray for revival, what they're saying is that pray that God sends a revival, meaning let's go pray that God takes us back to the Reagan days. (laughs) Which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad thing, but that's not the revival at Asbury, and that's not biblical definition of revival. Actually, what we see in 1 Samuel 7 has all the marks of true revival. First, you see in chapter 7, verse 2, that God's people lamented after the Lord. They were in spiritual decline. They knew it. And so they lamented after the Lord, meaning they hungered for a deeper experience of the presence of God in their lives. And second, they repented of sin. Verse 3, Samuel says, return to the Lord with all your heart. Remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him alone. So they turn away from doing what is right in their own eyes. They turn back to God. They purge their heart of all competing gods and they once again honor God as king and they ultimately willingly give him the throne of their hearts. And then third, they take tangible actions to show their change of heart. They actually do get rid of all the idols in their homes and hanging around their necks. They tear down the idolatrous places of worship and confess the immoral worship that they've engaged in with the surrounding culture. That is true revival. That's pretty much what happened at Asbury. The chapel speaker, the day when all of this started, exhorted the students, and he later said, I didn't think it was all that great of a message. Uh, So he exhorted the students, though, he said, become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. And they closed their time that morning by praying, Lord, revive us by your love. And about 20 students hung around and began to worship and pray with one another. 
and one of the students got up and publicly repented of some sin that the Holy Spirit had convicted him of, and then another, and another, and another, and they all were began to confess these sins, and according to the students, as they stayed and prayed and confessed their sins and worshiped, an unexplainable, almost like surreal peace descended on the room. And as minutes stretched into hours, and some of them said, like, you just lose track of time, many of the students had gone to class, returned to the auditorium when they heard what was going on, and eventually they were joined by faculty and staff, and then people in the community began to uh, trickle in and participate uh, in the worship and prayer, and it went on for two weeks. Richard Loveless, in his classic book entitled The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, talks about how the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, understood revival. He said that Edwards said that revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate decline. Restores you to normal spiritual life. Israel was morally corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. They were in serious spiritual decline, and finally they realized it, and they began to hunger for a renewed sense of God's presence, and they cried out to God, and led by Samuel, they repented, and Yahweh did a supernatural work in their hearts, and he restored them to normal spiritual life with Yahweh. Same thing at Asbury. Edward also stressed the core of revival was not an emotional experience, and I've edited this a bit to make it a little bit more modern, but he said that revival is a spirit-given comprehension of the glory of God which purges the heart and leads inevitably to a meek and lamb-like spirit and to an outflow of good works, the doing of works of mercy and justice. What I'm saying, what Edwards is saying, what 1 Samuel Seven is showing us, and what we saw happening at Asbury and other places is this. There is no revival apart from a spirit-initiated work of God that leads to repentance. And if you can't talk about sin, you're not going to experience revival. There is no revival apart from a spirit-initiated work of God that leads to repentance. You can't make it happen. You can't bottle what's happened at Asbury and other places and then bring that bottle home and pour out all the ingredients and fill the bottle because you want it to happen. We we have to be very careful to not treat what God has graciously done at Asbury like the Israelites treated the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that we can take a good thing that God has done and we can use it to manipulate God into doing what we want done here or wherever even if the thing we want done is a good thing. God will not be manipulated. And so if you're praying for revival, pray that God would once again be as enthroned as king over all of your life. Take God's word seriously. Ask God to cause you to see the weight of his glory in the glory of Christ. How does this passage point us to Jesus? Again, it's just so simple. Jesus is the king. He's the true king. He is our king. He is the ultimate king, the perfect king, the one from the line of David. He's not like the king Israel asked for. He's a king that would be a taker, a king who would make them like all the other nations. 
No, Jesus is the opposite of the king that the people asked for. Jesus is the king who will make us unlike all the other peoples who don't know God. He, he is king. He is the king who came not to be served, but to serve. He is the king who came not to take, but to give his life as a rescue for many, a, a, to rescue us from sin and death, and to rescue you, uh, rescue you from the corrupting tides of the culture that will drag us down. He, he, he's the kind of king that puts our lives back together when we mess up. He's the king whom God has now exalted to the highest place and given him a name above all names. And at his name one day every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king to the glory of the Father. And Jesus, King Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom on earth and he will sit on the throne of his father David and reign forever and ever and we will reign with him as children of the king. Amen. So be it. Would you bow your head with me? During our time together today, Has the Spirit of God caused your heart to hunger for a renewed sense of God's presence in your life? Are you feeling that tug by the Holy Spirit? If so, ask God to give you a renewed sense of His presence, a renewed sense of His glory a renewed sense of his weightiness. And then, has the Spirit of God put his finger on something in your life that you need to confess? Some area where maybe you've bought into cultural lies some area where you're not taking God's word seriously. We're told confess your sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all wrongdoing for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love.